following audio is from Deering Christian Church. Join us Sunday mornings at either 9 or 10.30 a.m. Quarantine. You know what I think about quarantine right now? I think done, done. It's, it's over, it's done. Hopefully never have to do anything like that again. Um, I quarantine in a room in our house so that Donna could go to work before December 6th. All right, and um, she said if things weren't kind of so strapped at work, she said that she might have just not quarantined from me and then gotten a vacation until December 6th, but uh, that probably wouldn't fly too well with some of her coworkers, especially with the holidays here. So she did not do that. So quarantine, um, I'm just glad it's done. I'm glad it's over with, all right? Most of the time, the phrase, all done, is said with emphasis and sometimes, sometimes a level of accomplishment, all right? Most time as parents, we, we, we like that phrase from our kiddos, right? All done, all done, I'm done, dad, I'm done, mom, it's the, the job's done, it's, it's all done. Most of the time, parents like that, maybe with the exception of the three-year-old in the bathroom saying, all done, all done, need some help in here, all right? Um, remember those days, parents? Okay. Um, Christmas is soon upon us. I'm just curious. I have not done this in months, okay? So I think my wife will be okay with this because she, she does not like me doing this. But I'm just curious. How many of you, by show of hands, the Christmas shopping is done? We've got, got a few of you? All right. I see, I, I see some women. I don't see one man's hand up. It's like, preacher, it's not Christmas Eve. I haven't even started. All right. Um, Christmas is, it's, it's, it's almost upon us, and we will get on the other side of it here in a month and a few days, and we will say, all done, and we'll put another Christmas kind of in the rear view mirror. And let me tell you something, especially those of you, I mean, I am, I am 45 now. I'm getting a little little more up there anyway, a little more seasoned in life. And I've lived long enough to know this, that Christmases take on more and more meaning to me with each passing year. And I'm not saying that they're all just uh, hunky-dory and wonderful. That's not what I'm saying, because Christmas can be kind of tough sometimes. But what I am saying is this, I, I remember Christmas celebrations of days and years ago that I had the privilege of celebrating with, with family who aren't here anymore, okay? And sometimes Christmas can be a little tough. For some people this year, Christmas will be a little tough because it will be the first Christmas without maybe grandpa or grandma or dad or mom or a brother or a sister or Christmases, yes, they can be kind of tough sometimes. Jesus is coming. After all, that's what Christmas is all about. And his coming was foretold. Today we're going to take a look at that foretelling. The biblical name for this is prophecy. And Jesus' coming was told, foretold again and again and again. And when somebody comes along that fulfills prophecy, I would think that we would take notice. It seems so foreign to us. I mean, think about that. Can you think of somebody from your lifetime that fulfilled a prophecy of some kind? 
seems a little foreign. A little foreign. It was somewhat foreign to the people of the day when Jesus arrived also. You see, there had been 400 years of prophetic silence from the prophet Malachi of the Old Testament and from the time that he spoke and put pen to parchment, pen to paper, it had been 400 years since a prophet of God had shown up and that 400 years of silence was broken by an old priest and by a virgin mom-to-be. And I wonder what those prophets, I wonder about those prophets of old, the, prior to those 400 years of silence. When, when most people think about the prophets and about the coming of Jesus, their mind, Bible scholars, their mind goes, goes to Isaiah because he speaks often of the coming Messiah. But perhaps there was a prophet that would rival the familiarity or rival the famousness of Isaiah. And this prophet wasn't really even a prophet. He was a king and he was a poet. And his name was David. We're going to start today in the 110th Psalm. We're just going to look at three psalms today. Now, they're pretty good-sized psalms, so we're going to do this quickly, all right? We're going to start with the 110th Psalm. From there, we're going to go to the 118th Psalm. And then from there, we're going to backtrack all the way to the 22nd Psalm. And we're going to spend a little bit of time in that one, all right? But today, if you'd like to turn to the 110th Psalm in your Bible, I can tell you um, with pretty, much, pretty confidence you're going to find yourself kind of in the middle of your Bible if you do that. The 110th Psalm, we're not going to look at any of the specifics. I'm not going to quote any of this or read any of these verses. This is going to look a little bit different because I'm just going to refer to some of them, all right? Let me tell you something. The author of the 110th Psalm, as I've already told you, was King David. King David, that is, that is not debated in any way whatsoever. Everyone understands this. This is the interesting thing, though. What is, what is talked about in the 110th Psalm? There is no event in David's life that match up with the content of this psalm. It's like sometimes you can look at the life of, of an individual writing and say, oh, well, he's talking about himself here. But here it doesn't match up with anything. It just doesn't. Right here, King David the poet David, the warrior, the warrior David, was here all prophets. And he was speaking of Messiah. Understand something. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. How Jesus' last name, Christ, is not a last name. It's his title. Christ. It is messianic. He is the Messiah. A, an Israelite, a Jew, would not even say the Messiah. They would just name him Messiah and speak to that that individual with almost using Messiah as a name like Laverda instead of saying Laverda Messiah so this this psalm is about Messiah now when when I look at this psalm there's some things that I see here I see within the 110th psalm it's speaking of the Messiah that he would take his seat at the right hand of the Lord God, he would be a king, he would be a king with, unlike any other king ever before or ever after. A king that would not only reign forever, but a king that would reign with a, with a strong scepter, all right? And this king would place his enemies 
under himself, they would be his footstool. And what that is referring to is a conquering king would sometimes symbolically show his power over his enemies by having them lay down on the ground in front of him, him sitting on the throne before them and placing his feet on their necks, saying, you are conquered. And this king would be a conqueror. He would be a king forever. But not only would he be a king, he would be a priest. And he would be a priest unlike any other. He would not be a priest from the tribe of Levi. He would be a priest according to Melchizedek. Now, Melchizedek is quite the mysterious figure of the Old Testament. Not a whole lot about the guy. He just shows up and Abraham gives tithes and offering towards him because Melchizedek, who shows up out of, another, out of nowhere, wears the title priest of the Most High God. Before there were really priests. The priests of Israel came from the tribe of Levi. And uh, again, uh, Abraham's still alive here. Uh, Levi's dad, his name was Jacob, later names changed to Israel. He's not even born yet, all right? And this Melchizedek guy shows up. And, and David writes of Messiah saying he will be a priest without anyone before or after. He would be a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Something completely different. This psalm of prophecy of the Messiah is something that got the Jews pumped up. If they were going to talk about Messiah coming, this is where they would go. The 110th Psalm. They loved it. They loved the king talk. They loved the priest talk. This was their thing. This is like, do you remember jock jams from the 90s? I asked my, I asked my daughters to say they remember jock jams. They're like, what, 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 what are you talking about? Is that, is that like a type of jelly or something? Jock jams? It's like, oh my goodness. That's like what we warmed up to in basketball back in the day. All right? I mean, it was good stuff. I don't know if it's good stuff, but anyway, but it would get you pumped up. You go out there, and maybe if you couldn't dunk, it'd make you think you could, all right? So, so this is like this to them. This is like if they want to get excited, this is where they would go. And it's easy to understand why when the Jews were thinking of the coming of Messiah. Guys, this is like our Philippians 2. You know Philippians 2? Does that get you excited? Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What knee and what tongue? Every single one. That's what's coming, brothers and sisters, and that gets us excited. The 110th Psalm got the Jews excited. So let's go from that one to the 118th Psalm. For me, it's just one page over, the 118th Psalm. This is the last of the Hillel Psalms. And those were psalms of thanksgiving for God the Redeemer. These were psalms of praise of the Jews for the Redeemer of Israel. This is the psalms that they would think of when they would think back to God rescuing his people from bondage in Egypt. As a matter of fact, these were called the Egypt Hallel Psalms. And these Psalms, the 113th Psalm through the 118th Psalm, were used often in Passover celebration rituals amongst the Jews. This too, um, some think, was written by David. Now that's not conclusive. But there's some evidence that, that can back that up. 
I wonder if, if, the, if, if the Jews, they used this psalm to celebrate what God did for their people. And that's what JB looked at last week. We, he, spent, he, spent a, he spent a good portion of last Sunday talking about the, the ten plagues and the, the Passover plague and how God redeemed his people and freed them from bondage in Egypt. And, and the Jews would use this psalm, the 118th psalm, looking back of what God had done for them. I wonder if they ever used it to look forward. I wonder if this was what they considered a Messiah prophecy or if that idea did not come about until Jesus was here and Jesus was gone. Let's take a look at it. The 118th Psalm. First verse. Here we go. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his loving kindness is everlasting. That should sound a little familiar to you. Um, there's a song that we've sung here a number of times. Um, it goes along these lines, comes right out of, of this. Matter of fact, there's a lot of hymns and songs that come out of this psalm of, of the Old Testament. But this one was like this. Now, I'm not going to sing it, okay? If I, if I hadn't just gotten over being sick, I would sing for you. I wasn't going to do it anyway, all right? But here we go. Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. His love endures forever. Song written by a guy by the name of Chris Tomlin. He wrote this song, oh, 12, 13 years ago. We sung it many times here on Sunday mornings. And he took his words from this song. But you know something? I mean, I've seen this. Give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. His love endures forever. I've sung it. Forever you are faithful. Forever you are good. All of these words. But I don't remember the following in Chris Tomlin's song. Why don't we look down to about verse 10. It says, All nations surround me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. You pushed me violently so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and song, and he has become my salvation. I don't remember singing those words in Chris Tomlin's forever. What about verse 18? The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he's not given me over to death. Death has no hold on me. I wonder if the Pharisees, who so many times had sung, chanted, quoted this song in times of Passover and celebration of Passover and remembering what God had done for Israel and bringing them out of Egypt. I wonder if they ever saw themselves in this song. Look at verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. You know who the builders are, brothers and sisters? They were the Pharisees. 
You know who the stone they rejected was? Messiah. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Oh my goodness, there's another praise song. A little side note when it comes to praise. Brothers and sisters, like I said, this will sound a little foreign to us because we are Gentiles. I think the majority of us in this room are Gentiles. All right? And even if we were Jews or even Orthodox Jews, we would know that since the fall of the temple in Jerusalem going on almost 2,000 years ago, there has not been sacrifice like this take place again. little side note here, these Egypt Hillel Psalms, of which this is the last one, the 113th Psalm, as I told you, through the 118th Psalm. This Psalm would be chanted in the temple. It would be sung in the temple while the Passover lambs were slain. Do you understand the significance of that? Who is our Passover lamb? Christ, the Messiah. It says here near the end of this psalm that they would take the blood of the sacrifice and, and place it on the horns of the altar. And I know all of us are thinking, what? I mean, it sounds foreign to us. We don't understand what is this is referring to because Jesus put an end to this. This is how Jesus puts it in. When you took the blood from a sacrifice and you placed it on the horn of the altar, the horns, I'm not talking about a horns, I'm talking about the horns of the altar like the horns of a bull, all right? And when you placed it on those horns, what you are saying is this sacrifice is eternal. An end of all sacrifice. An end of all blood, sacrifice. Another little side note about this Hillel psalm. This is probably one of the songs, the hymns that Jesus and his disciples sang on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. And you just imagine what's going through the mind of Jesus, Messiah, as he sings these songs. foretelling what's about to happen to him. On that note, let's turn to the 22nd Psalm. We all know about the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Yeah, we, we, we know that when he leads me through the has of righteousness for his name's sake. Do I walk through the valley of the shadow of the death? I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. We know that one. We know that one, right? What about the 22nd Psalm? What about that one? It's a psalm of suffering. And it is most definitely a psalm of David, the king, the warrior, and the prophet. Once again, though David has suffered some in life, and some of the suffering that he endured was a result of his own stupidity, all right? And his own sin. But some of what David endured was not a result of his sin. It was just 
circumstances that were beyond his control. As King Saul hunted him, desiring to destroy him and his line. But yes, David did suffer, he did suffer, but the language of this psalm transcends anything David experienced. He simply did not suffer like this. Look at the first verse. This should sound familiar to us. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When those words were spoken by Jesus in Aramaic, it sounded something like this. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And he cried it out from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Father, you are so far away as I groan. And folks, that groan there, mm, New American Standard doesn't do the best job with that one. Literally, it means a roar or a shriek of intense pain. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Continue down to verse 6. And see if this sounds familiar at all. But I'm a worm and not a man. I'm like this, this thing that crawls in the dust beneath man. I am a worm and not a man. The reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They make faces at me. They wrinkle their nose when they see me. They wag the head saying, do you remember this? This is Jesus on the cross, okay? And they say, commit yourself to the Lord and let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. It's like, they, you remember the words, well, he saved others, but he can't save himself. Look at him up there on that cross. A mighty failure. Continue down to verse 14 and see if you remember any of these lines from Silent Night or Joy to the World. I am poured out like water and all of my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt, like a piece of broken pottery. My tongue cleaves to my jaws. I, can't, I don't even have anything in my mouth. I can't even talk. My mouth is so dry. You lay me in the dust of death. The dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They look and they stare at me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. What a picture of Christmas, huh? Throughout every bit of it, Messiah trusted in the Father. Look at verse 19. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O you, my help, hasten to my assistance. Deliver my soul, my soul from the sword, my only life from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, from the horns of the wild oxen. You answer me. Yes, 
even as he cried out the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus trusted in the plan. He trusted in the will of his Father. And look at the result of it. The psalm takes an incredible change in verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. How do you know? Another praise song. All you descendants of Israel, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He didn't run from the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him for help, he heard. Brothers and sisters, the grave is empty. Jesus overcame the grave. And the Father did not abandon Messiah to the depths of hell. They conquered death. And therefore, we praise our Father and our Messiah. Do you like to know when good times are coming? Do you? I mean, you young people in here, you young, young ladies, young gentlemen, are you looking forward to the good times that come of not having to go to school for a few days? It's going to happen this week. Oh, that's good times. Let the good times roll. Christmas is around the corner. You young people, I hope there are years behind you of joy with that and years ahead of you of joy as well. I told you, Christmas can be tough, but Christmas can be really good too. Brothers and sisters, we have something amazing to look forward to. Our Messiah is preparing our eternity as I speak. And it will be good. Yeah, I kind of like to know that some good times are coming. What about this, though? When it comes to the most trying times in life, is it, to better, is it better to know ahead of time that, that those times are coming? JB and I spoke with a man just in the past couple of weeks who's been told he has just a number of short years left to live by the doctors. Is that a good thing to know? I mean, we all know that trying times come, that difficulty comes. It's a part of living in this world. But knowing specifics, would you like that or would you not? I would kind of like to just be surprised by myself, I think. Jesus had known. From an understanding of time that we cannot even fathom. You understand that, right? God the Father, Christ the Son, now, and the Holy Spirit exist outside 
the boundaries of time. We, we understand that, correct? There was a period of time that Jesus submitted himself to time while he was here in this world. But that's no longer that way, and it was not that way beforehand. So what I mean by that is this. He had an understanding of timing that we can't even fathom. Because everything about this life for us is, is, is seen through the lens of time. Jesus had known. He had known what was coming for him. It had been decreed by him, by the Father, and by the Spirit long before David or Isaiah ever put pen to parchment, all right, that Jesus would be pierced. And that by his wounds, we would be healed. Jesus knew this. I wonder what it felt like for him to finish the task. To cry out, it is finished. If you were reading the Bible for the first time, okay, and you were trying to take the whole of this, there's a lot of content there, okay, and you were trying to kind of put it in order, I think that what we would probably do, just because of the limitedness of our concept of time, we would probably rip the 22nd Psalm out of that place and we would place it at the foot of the cross. David, in a way that he probably did not even come close to understanding, was writing almost like a spectator. You see, the blood of Jesus reached back just like it reached forward. And David was writing of his own Savior, his own Messiah. Because David was not perfect. And it would take the blood of God to redeem him. Christmas is about a cross, brothers and sisters. Take a look at verse 31 as we wrap up. The 22nd Psalm, verse 31, because this is so good. It says this, David writing of what would take place so many years later, he said this, they will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born. He's saying there's people still coming who are to declare the righteousness of God that he has performed it. We are fulfilling that prophecy today. Do you understand that? Our God is righteous, and through the blood of Jesus Christ, he has made us righteous. And in verse 31, it says this, the people who will be born, they will declare his righteousness, that he has performed it. You know what the Hebrew says? <laughs> it's interesting that he has performed it. In the Hebrew, it's one word. You know what the word is? Done. 
it's done. Jesus came to suffer and die and arise victorious over all that Satan in this world could throw at him. And because of that, we sing praise to God forever. Our God is faithful.